and welcome to People Keep Dying, a podcast about people who die. I'm your host, Angela, and this week I have my neighbor and friend, Chrissy, and she's going to tell me a story. Yay. So, and it's a heavy-ish, it's a heavy hitter, I would say. Or, yeah. yeah. I don't know, it, would he be considered like a motherfucking serial killer? Mm. Um... Yeah, I don't know. In terms, he is a serial killer, right? Like sort of. Well, it's there's kind of a weird thing with like the the serial killers in the past, and like even back into the 70s and 80s, where they killed so many people in such a short period of time that they're like it's almost they're almost more of like a spree killer. But I think they just kind of went faster because they couldn't get caught as easily. Mm -hmm. But anyway. They I don't were, know why we're building it up because there's a title on these things. Yes, we're doing there Jack is. the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> Some people don't look at it. I mean, I always do, but there's probably one person who doesn't look at it and just listens to it. You yeah. Know, just on autoplay, maybe out of my hundreds of listeners. <laughs> yeah, Jack the Ripper. I think it's the one that everybody thinks that they know the story, but then very few people actually do. There's so much to the story yeah there's been so many movies made about him yeah but then people are still always so shocked by the number of victims and that Mm -hmm. it's so low so there are the five canonical victims so these are five women that were killed during what's called the autumn of terror um that are have basically kind of always been in like the jack the ripper zeitgeist accepted as the number of victims They were a part of a larger pattern that Scotland Yard called the Whitechapel murders. And that was a total of 11 women murdered. That includes the canonical five. And that spans from 1888 until 1892. But I am only going to be covering seven of them today. So that is uh, the five canonical, one earlier one that basically is canonical now, like basically all modern. Ripperologists believe that she was one of them. And then the very first one that some people think was a part of it and some people don't. How do you get a job as a ripperologist? It's not a job. <laughs> okay. It is uh like self-appointed and um it's like if you're a historian and it's yeah, so it's a lot of like armchair historians. People do their own kind of research so and you're they'll ripperologist. self-publish. I'm not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's basically a subgenre of um, of being like an amateur historian. And the thing that I really like about the the kind of the whole case of the Jack the Ripper thing is that um, there are so many records from that time and that people can find out such specific things about these people who lived and died so long ago. Do you think they'll ever really know who no did it. i didn't think they so. won't i mean they didn't anyone really who tells you anyone who tells you differently is just trying to make money oh well, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's why they released all those books about the speculation of who it might be but yeah that, and some, I watched some a documentary yeah. about like oh it's probably this person I know. And you can watch so many of them and come away from each one being like, oh, it's definitely that guy. Oh, it's definitely this guy. Mm-hmm. Well, Johnny Depp said, <laughs> if Johnny Depp is in anything, you can accept that it's not true to life anyway. Jack the Ripper, The Autumn of Terror. 
I wrote a really bad subtitle just because it made myself laugh. Mm-hmm. What is I'll it? read it to you. Um, it says, back when autumn was about terror and not PSLs. <laughs> the things that I do to amuse myself. Oh, okay. I don't, I, I don't actually like PSLs like at all. Oh, my God. I love them. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. So I'm going to be doing my best to use the term sex worker um, unless there's like a It's hard like a because quote. of the time. Yeah. There, there are some, like, I'm going to be quoting from some letters. Mm-hmm. And in there, I'm just going to read the words that they wrote. But, and usually it's prostitute because that's what they or, use. Yeah, or worse. <laughs> is it wench? Is that, is that no. what they use? Did they ever use wench back no, then? No, that's more like piratey. Okay. I don't know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Jack Ripper on the high seas. Okay. <laughs> so You might have been a pirate, guys. So he might be actually one. There is a, a a newer theory that he was like this German sailor. We'll get to it later. Okay. Anyway, so 1888, London was the biggest city in the world. The British Empire was at its peak. Everyone just colonization everywhere. Um, could I find the actual population for this time? No, of course not. It's only like one of the most studied parts of history. But I did find. In 1861, it was 3 million. In 1910, it was 7 million. So we're somewhere in between there. Millions of people. Millions of people. Biggest yeah. in the world. So in the West End of London, that was where the rich and fashionable, pe- fashionable people lived. Um, it's kind of like the center of arts and culture, a lot like it is now. Yeah, I was going to say, it hasn't changed much, except the murders maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it has in some ways. People aren't like riding around on horses still and whatever. Less hats, I feel like. Less hats. Less hats. Less less, um, bodies being just left out after being murdered for an extended period of time. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Good. The East End was the opposite of the West End. It was where the like the slums were some of the worst slums that were really in the world and they were kind of a blight on the face of London because it it just um you know like social commentators at the time would say things about you know it's just kind of wild how you could have like the you know like Buckingham Palace and all the super rich people Mm -hmm. and you know all the people that they make movies about now (laughs) and They still make movies about Jack the Ripper. They do, yeah, but they're a very specific kind. They're not just like the kind of um, whatever the Victorian Jane Austen was. Anyway, no one's writing like YA dystopian novels about people who live in the East End. So it wasn't one massive slum as a lot of people like to, like, I think as it sometimes seems like there were some mixed um, areas. There were like middle-class areas. There were doctors, photographers, um, and people who, who had like decent jobs. They were, it wasn't all like one den of crime, but it did have the worst, um, areas of abject poverty. Some of the neighborhoods that we're going to be talking about that are in the East End include Whitechapel, Spitalfields, um, some others I can't remember right now, whatever. 
So, and people from the West End would also go slum diving in the East End. So they would get all dressed up in like their rattiest clothes and just go down there and wow. like hang it, like literally just hang out with all the super poor people who didn't have anywhere to live that night and all that sort of thing. To make themselves feel better or? I think just for funsies. Oh. Just to, just to see, yeah, just go, you know, visit, pretend to be poor for a little bit and then go back and then go to back your mansion. To your, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. One big part of the population and something that had a um a big influence on the culture of the east end at the time was the huge influx of eastern european jews this was because in uh in the areas that they were living in that the russian empire had taken over they had been subject to these things called pogroms um and these were basically people in power like uh, patriarchs in different churches and politicians, whatever, they would rile up the populace to to do like a riot and try to destroy Jewish property and kill people because, you know, they thought that they were responsible for everything bad that ever happened. I mean, they basically are still now for some reason. Well, and actually, um, if you look up and research a little bit about pogroms that I did at some point and don't necessarily recall all of it right now, but Kristallnacht was actually is considered a pogrom. So, you oh. know, the, like the Night of the Broken Glass. So mm-hmm. and that was in, you know, Nazi times. Um, so in this area that included um, like Poland, Western Russia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, little bits here and there of all this stuff. There was this area that they called the Pale and most Jews would be confined to this area. And over the years, they would keep restricting the area where Jews could like live and work and move about freely. Um, So then that combined with all these like murderous, like mob riots made kind of like a a flood of refugees fleeing for their lives. Is it kind of like Native Americans in America where like you just start decreasing the amount of room that you give them? Like the land, you're like, oh. Sort of. Yeah. Although a lot of these were more urban areas. Okay. And um, they would, you know, they just put out all these laws about what jobs people can do, like being out in certain areas. Um, I think that there was a lot of kind of like ghettoization happening mm-hmm. too, where like they would be confined to like a ghetto or whatever. Um, and then, you know, just you never knew when your neighbors would all get together in a mob and try to kill you. Um, I did a story about that. <laughs> <laughs> so these refugees, they were fleeing the violence as well as the economic chokehold of these laws. And between 1881 and 1884, there were more than 200 individual pogroms in the Russian Empire. So a lot of the Jewish refugees, they would flee. London was the biggest city in the world. British Empire was the thing. And so a lot of Jews would make their way to there, a lot of times with the hope of moving on to the United States. But then a lot of people would just kind of end up getting stuck there. They would get their jobs or whatever. They wouldn't have the money to mm-hmm to get on a ship and go to the U.S. And so they would settle in the East End a lot of the time because it was near the docks. Um, It was like a cheaper place to live in town, like just kind of the the normal way that it happens when there's like a new influx of um, of like refugees and immigrants and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, However, they were not very welcomed, shall we say. So in... You know, in uh, conjunction with centuries of just like hostility and anti-Semitism, 
the uh, the local like Gentile population, they just they mistrusted and hated the Jews. I mean, if you read any Victorian novels, you're going to like see it like Charles Dickens or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like they had all these like there were just these really horrible stereotypes that, um, you know, people didn't even try to hide it and be like, I don't see blah, blah, blah. They were just like, oh, they're all terrible. Anyway, why am I describing racism? People know <laughs> it was bad. It was it was it wasn't just bad during world war ii and it wasn't just bad with hitler around it's not just bad now it's always been really bad yeah so although there weren't like pogroms there in london they people just really hated them they so in the area of the east end like during the um the potato famine all of these irish people had come over in Mm -hmm. like the 1840s and 50s and stuff like that so everyone hated them and then during the 18 like 70s and 80s uh, and 90s all these Jewish refugees were coming so then they became the new target targeted they're the new Irish people they they were the new Irish people mm-hmm. yeah um and so people wouldn't want to live near Jews so there would be essentially like whole buildings or whole streets that were basically like a like a Jewish area mm-hmm. and Gentiles wouldn't want to live there so they would be living kind of like side by side but a lot of times they didn't want to like intermix it was very um What's the word? Segregated? Yeah, I guess so. Um, (laughs) However, there would be some of the extremely poor women. They would sometimes pick up some cleaning work from the like the better off Jewish people. And Mm -hmm. that includes some of the victims we're going to talk about would do that. Another thing I want to talk about um, with the, the Jewish population, because it's going to come up in our story later, is that a lot of these uh, Jews at the time, they would be called Polish Jews, even if they came from, you know, they might have been like Russian or like Lithuanian or whatever, but basically everyone got called the same thing, you know. Why Polish Jews? Because I think because the pale, it was mostly Poland, but also at the time in the 19th century, like the borders changed a lot. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of like that general area. They would just be like, oh, it's Poland because it was always changing. Yeah. Or whatever. So so people, so a lot of times when people would write about like certain suspects or whatever, like the, they would just say like, oh, he was a Polish Jew. Might not have actually been Polish, but he was Jewish. So he was a Polish Jew. And people would also, um, they would also mean that when they would say that, oh, someone looked foreign or someone sounded foreign mm-hmm. meant that they were like a, a Jewish immigrant, a refugee. I'm so sad that this sounds like now. I know. <laughs> Good thing things are so much oh, better yeah. now. It's changed so much. Well, All it's right. changed a lot. Let's talk about a murder that happened before we even get to the Jack the Ripper case because this is also important to what <laughs> happens here. So this is called uh, the Lipsky case. So there was this 22-year-old Jewish immigrant living in the East End. His name was Israel Lipsky. Um, coincidentally, he lived on the same street as a very famous um, suspect incident. That was only a block away from one of the murders. Is that why he was a suspect? No, he wasn't a suspect. Okay. So in 1887, the year before the Autumn of Terror, police get called to this lodging house on Batty Street and they found a Jewish woman named Miriam Angel, who was a lodger in that house, dead on the bed. She had nitric acid poured down her throat and that's what killed her. Oh. She was six months pregnant at the time. Oh my God. So the police begin investigating and they look under the bed. 
you know what they find under the bed? Israel Litsky. He's just fucking hanging under, out under the bed. Why? And he has um, acid burns all in his mouth. Ew. Yeah. So they arrest him. And he, so he also lodged at that same house, the house where the murder happened. Wait, why was it on his mouth? Because he had also tried to kill himself. Drink it. Oh. It's, yeah. Did he think he was being romantic? I don't, there's, there's not really a ton of information about that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happened was they rested him there under the bed. They, I assume they pulled him out first. Just imagine that though. They're just like looking at the body and then they just look down like, oh, there he is. And just staring at you. Yeah, with acid burn. Oh, my all God. over his mouth. It's like a oh horror movie. Gosh. There are a few moments in here where it's literally like horror movie shit. He gets hauled out from under the bed, arrested and sent to trial. And there was not really a ton of evidence other than that he was, he was under there. the bed mm-hmm. with acid <laughs> burns to his mouth. Um, he tried to say that his employers had done it. And he was trying to save her, and that's why there was acid in his mouth? No, he just said his employers did it, and it didn't really elaborate beyond that. Okay. Um, The jury deliberated for eight minutes (laughs) and came back and said, he did it, hang him. Yeah. So the death sentence got pushed back a little bit. By pushback, I mean, like, it basically happened really quickly back then. They were like, we don't need appeals and stuff. Yeah. But so it, it actually got pushed back because there was a lot of controversy about the evidence that had been presented and was it actually enough to convict someone or was this just institutionalized anti-Semitism at work? Mm -hmm. And apparently even Queen Victoria herself was very concerned that it it was an improper uh, conviction basically because there was no evidence. But while people are like arguing about this and it goes back to court, Lipsky confesses to a rabbi that, yeah, yeah, he did it. And so then they he's hanged uh, less than two months after he killed this woman. Two months is a pretty long time back then. Yeah. So the reason that this murder, while it is not connected, it's not one of the Whitechapel murders. Mm-hmm. The reason why it is important is because the name Lipsky became a very localized anti-Jewish slur. And uh, yeah, and so people like in the the West End, like people who didn't go into these really bad areas, they wouldn't know that term, but Jews would have like Lipsky shouted at them and then sometimes be attacked. so disgusting. Remember that for later. (laughs) Um, Another thing we need to talk about, and I hope, okay, I would say I hope people aren't bored with this. I don't care. This is the stuff I like. Who cares? People are in Jack the Ripper. They were Jack the Ripper case, like, for the social history. Listen, yeah, if you're listening to this episode, you're for sure interested in him. Yeah. And if you're if this is uninteresting to you, then why are you listening to this episode? <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to something you would, that would bore you. That's, that's good. Uh, okay, so these victims who we're going to talk about soon – they lived in some of the worst streets, and a lot of these are going to come up over and over again. Um, you don't have to really remember where they are, but you're going to hear them again, like George Street, Flower and Dean Street, Dorset Street, Thrall Street. And on these streets, they were full of what are called DOS houses. So DOS houses or common lodging houses, they were places where you could like rent a bed for about four pennies a night. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like you got a room. Sometimes you rented half a bed and someone else slept in the bed beside you. Wow. And they would go like months between linen changes 
Like it was, this was a place for like abject poverty. And um, if, if you, let's say you only had like one, one or two pennies, Mm -hmm. some places would have either a wall with a rope against it. And you could pay your one or two pennies to stand against the wall. And the rope was there so that you wouldn't fall forward. And that was how you slept, was standing against the wall with a ton of other people. And that's Um, normal. Or there were also places where they have, there's actually a picture from the early 20th century where um, there's, they would have ropes across the room Mm -hmm. and people would just hang themselves like in half, like at the waist over the rope. And sleep like that, like in an A shape. Holy crap. And people slept like that. Some of these beds, people said that you could hear the vermin and the bugs like crawling around inside of them. Yeah. And you would get bitten by them. So this was, I I think. Was it during the Black Plague too or no? I don't actually remember when the Black Plague was, but you know, like. That was during like the 14th century. I don't know. I'm terrible. I feel all my history classes just in case. 500 years. Oh, I love, I love it. I love that shit. I'm terrible with dates. I <laughs> failed so hard in all my history. Everyone's like, oh, what year was it? I don't know. <laughs> so I'm usually really good with that yeah. stuff. I love it. Um, no, there was no no plague then. That was like 500 I mean, they still years before. Diseases. Oh, yeah. There were all kinds yeah. of diseases. So it was so gross and unsanitary that this was literally like desperation. This was just one step better than sleeping on the street street and like dying in the cold sometimes oh at least yeah i guess at least it's warm yeah because yeah especially like in the winter and some of these people they did like some of our victims that we'll talk about they did occasionally sleep rough Mm -hmm. as our uk friends call it or basically sleep outside um but most of the time people would try to get their their like four pennies to be able to sleep in one of these disgusting nasty beds oh my god so that they wouldn't be on the street and I think you'll see why too, because these the 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 amount of people that are just like out on the streets is wild. So at the time, the drug of choice was not meth, it was not oxy. Big pharma had not given us those things yet. Not people yet. didn't know how to cook these things. Um, what it was was gin. Oh, I know. You well, just alcohol, think of yeah, alcohol, 100%. yeah. And so gin was actually one of the cheapest things that you could get as well because there was a tax on beer that made it more expensive than gin wow and so when you think about it these people who had to you know engage in like survival sex work and you know they would be a couple pennies from like being on the street all the time there was a lot of violence in the east end although murder was really rare oh but there was a lot of you know getting like punched in the face or beaten up and robbed and things like that so when you're when you're living in like these horrible conditions, a lot and of times they would they would spend their pennies on getting some gin and getting super drunk just to, to get forget about it and just kind ne- of get to the next day. Yeah, and to yeah. like get on with it. Um, so we'll see a lot of drinking in in our case here too. Yes, well, alcoholism is a disease and it is very addicting. So yeah, yeah. so. Gin was what brought a lot of people and especially the women that we're going to be talking about to the East End. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about before we go into our victims is about policing in in the in Victorian age. So they had a really different idea of policing at the time where they they were much more proactive. 
So people would be literally on these beats that would take you like 15 minutes, half an hour or something to walk your beat. And at a certain time, like your superior should be able to like look at their clock and say, okay, this person should be at this street and this street on the rounds right now. They, the cops would see each other sometimes going about their different beats. And the idea was that if they're out on the street all the time and constantly walking around, um, they're, they're going to basically deter crime because people aren't going to really have like the time for it. The cops can hear you. So they weren't armed, but they did have a little lantern and a whistle. <laughs> so <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous, but I mean, but, that's but really there's all still, you need still, back then. Well, even today, like um, cops in the UK, they don't, they don't carry have guns. guns. Yeah. yeah. So the because the theory was if anything bad was happening, you would blow your whistle and there's like a gajillion other yeah. beat cops right there and they're all going to come run over and help you. you. Yeah. Um, so ba, 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 da, da. would the cops actually be at these places that they were supposed to be at a certain time? No, no, I obviously mean, no. not. But that was the theory of it. They would uh, sometimes be you know, they would stop in somewhere with like people who are working at the time and have some drinks with them. Um, there's a story about a cop with one of the, the victims where he showed up and he didn't have his cape and they were just trying to like explain it away. I don't go into this with the victim because I don't really care that much about the cops, but it does come up with like the sightings and everything. Two police forces ended up investigating these cases all of our victims, except for one, were killed in the East End, and that was the territory of the Metropolitan Police Force. One of them was killed in the city of London, and that was covered by the city police. The border between these two jurisdictions, its there's like nothing to really make you notice that it's there. They're just like right beside each other. So if you get murdered on the border, what happens? Then it's like bon cop, bad cop, and they have like one French detective and one english detective and oh. <laughs> people who listen to this are like i don't know what that movie is or tv show or whatever you're talking about i've only seen know. half of it <laughs> anyway so basically they were they, they were two like different police forces and they ended up having to kind of work together as we will see by this one event but so most of the time we're working with the metropolitan police but then the city police end up getting involved later on and that leads to some shenanigans let's say Victim number one, or perhaps minus one. This is the so this is the first victim of the Whitechapel murders. And do they think that this might not be the same person? A lot. I would say most people who like really know the case, like ripperologists and people like me who are kind of casual fans of it. Um, most people don't think that this one was connected. However, if you read the Bank Holiday Murders by Tom Westcott, which I used for some for some of these for my research. Citing your sources. Yes, I do. I do have that at the end. So in Tom Westcott's book, The Bank Holiday Murders, he talks extensively about these first two victims that I'm going to cover. And he gives some really good research and theories about why it could be related and why it shouldn't be dismissed the way that a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. So let's get started. So April of 1888, it was a bank holiday, which basically just means it was a long weekend. Banks were closed on Monday. And uh, so that meant all of these like soldiers and sailors and everybody got paid. And then you got the day off and everyone partied and 
soldiers get the day off on bank holidays? I think you did. No, like you got paid before. Oh, okay. So okay. everyone got their money and then their like their pay, and then there would be you know, so, um, there. I mean, there would be soldiers out yeah. as as we will see mm-hmm. soon, um, and sailors and everybody. So all these like usually men in uniforms would have all of their pay, and they'd be flush with cash and go out drinking with their buddies on the bank holiday, and they would look for some women to to party with. Our first victim was Emma Smith. She was 45, which is kind of the age that most of the victims were. They were in their middle ages. I think it's a common misconception that people think that they were these um, like young women who are in their prime or whatever. And I think part of that is just kind of the like how true crime and like I think especially with this that it's like a historical true crime. So it's not as horrible in people's minds i think and people also that imagine they kind of, that sex workers are almost always young even yeah i think so true too. Yeah. yeah um so i think that people to kind of have like in their mind where they think of like sex workers and especially back in the past with like their you know bodices and mm-hmm. whatnot and all that kind of thing where they think of them as like these like young buxom attractive women or whatever but uh that was they those people were around but yeah. those people were not our people because those people probably made enough money to get out of that situation no but no? they they made more money okay because obviously if you're if you're like young and hot you're gonna be like people are gonna be paying more money mm-hmm. to have sex with you rather than like, like a, a, a middle-aged woman who's yeah who's like you know been addicted to alcohol forever and is like all bloated and has diseases and stuff as we will see from our people so she had left her husband about 10 years previously at the time you could not just get divorced despite the fact that that was the whole reason that the anglican church happened but whatever at this point you could not if your marriage like broke down you just had to go your own separate ways and that was it you couldn't get married again until somebody died oh you couldn't get remarried no because you couldn't get divorced you would still be married Because you could only get divorced for, you know, like certain things and like the man had to initiate it. But even that, like it was really hard. That's probably like if you're really rich and noble or something like. Um, I think there were some things about like if the woman committed adultery, but then there had to be like so many witnesses and so many like situations or if or if you could find reasons for it to be annulled, like some reason that the marriage would have been invalid, which were very rare. So like if was, you were already married and then you married someone else. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would land you in jail. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, so they had separated. Um, this is going to be a common theme with a lot of our victims too, oh, no. where they had separated. She doesn't really have a lot that she can do to make her own money. And then in addition, a lot of them have like drinking issues before they get to the East end. And so this likely is what happened with her too, but we just don't really have a lot of information about Emma Smith particularly. Mm -hmm. So at the time of her death, she was staying at a DOS house on George Street, which is one of our really bad streets that we were talking about. So on this bank holiday weekend, she went out. Uh, There was another woman who, who was in the same DOS house with her, and they both ended up in the same area that was about two miles away from where they uh, lived and that was to get where there were a lot more sailors who were flush with cash as we talked about 
and were more likely to be looking for uh, sex workers. So they just had like a better, you know, financial situation out that way. So they went the extra distance to go out there. She ended up coming back to her DOS house early in the morning, all beaten and bloody, and her ear was like falling off. What? Yes. So here, so she ended up, so what she told the people at the DOS house Mm -hmm. was that she had been in the East End at this place on this uh, street called Brick Lane. And she said about three or four like young men attacked her and they were beating her and she basically went unconscious. And then she woke up at some point and they were gone and she walked back. And she was in a, at first, well, so actually before that story, she told them that she fell down. Why? Such is a question that one Mr. Tom Westcott talks about quite a lot in the bank holiday murders. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so she so she gets back. She at first she says she fell down when she talks to the deputy who's just like the the employee who's manning the desk for people coming in and out of the DOS house. Mm-hmm. And this was something like three or four in the morning or some people are just coming and going at all hours. Um, so she comes in like a bloody beaten mess appendages falling off of her head and everything like in a really bad shape she didn't fall down eventually she says these people beat me up and the deputy she wakes up another lodger who's also a woman Mm -hmm. and they decide that they're going to walk emma to the london hospital which is nearby so both of these women the the deputy leaving her post they walk emma smith to the hospital and they walk right by the place where she says that she was beaten and she points it out to them. But there's no blood there. What? So they get to the hospital and uh, she get the, the surgeon who's in charge there is like a literal child. He's 23 years old, oh but he's the doctor. Oh. So, so he is in charge of Emma Smith and he's like talking to her and they're trying to like treat her wounds and things like that. And he eventually gets the same story of, you know, this group of men attacked me. And at the time, neither she nor the doctor thought that she was in any like mortal peril. They thought that she would just like be there, heal up and she would be on her way. Mm -hmm. However, that night she slips into a coma and the next day she died of her wounds. And it was during her like, you know, post-mortem, whatever, they take her out of the bed, they're, like, taking her clothes off and stuff, that they see there's actually way worse injuries. Oh. Yes. So that she didn't even mention. So they find that she had actually been attacked and sustained some really bad injuries to her genitals and her internal organs. So when she had woken up on the street and she Uh was all bloody and beaten and attacked and everything, she had actually taken her shawl off and stuffed it up into her like into her skirt and between her legs to, mm-hmm. to like catch the blood because she was bleeding so much. Oh, my goodness. And uh, she didn't mention it <laughs> to anybody. She- um, but so what happened? OK, I'm probably going to gag as I like describe like medically what happened because it's like just oh, it's. So according to the doctor, what was a blunt object, very likely a walking stick, had been jammed, I believe, repeatedly um, with a lot of force into her vagina. And it tore the perineum, or as like the Victorian papers at the time put it for their delicate readers, the the thing between the front and back passages. Um, And it went up into her. This is a similar word that's hard to say. 
into her peritone. Okay, that was the perineum. This is the peritoneum, which is this membrane that holds your internal oh organs up. So it tore through these. It it um, perforated her this peritoneum and damaged some of her internal organs. And so her actual cause of death was peritonitis from that peritoneum oh. being. But it like so so basically there she was as they as the one doctor said in the um, inquest she was torn not cut. How did she survive? Even like to walk back? Oh, I know. That's crazy. Yeah. So she ended up dying on the morning of April 4th in the hospital. On April 6th, the coroner's office, uh, you know, says to the Metropolitan Police, hey, FYI, we're having an inquest into this woman's death. To which the Metropolitan Police reply, who? What? No one had told them. So she was attacked like on the night of if I, okay, I, I tried to look it up and it was saying that the Monday itself was April 2nd. So she was attacked in the early morning hours of the third. And that's when she went to the hospital. She died the next morning. So and no one bothered. Telling. It's now the sixth. And this is the first oh. that the police are hearing about. It. And so they don't have time to investigate or anything because the coroner's inquest is the next day. The, so some of the higher up cops thought that it was really weird how, well, I mean, first of all, there was no blood anymore at that spot, which I mean, someone could have just woken up it's the Victorian age in the East End. They're like, oh shit, there's a ton of yeah, blood here. And then just, just like cleaned it up. Because you can't do anything with it anyway. So, and who knows what happened? Someone could have, who knows? Yeah. Right? Like it could have been an animal or something. Um, But so no one reports seeing any blood where she told people that she had been attacked. Or maybe she doesn't remember correctly. But the other thing is that because all of these cops are going around their beats everywhere, Mm -hmm. she should have passed multiple beat cops on their rounds. She was also passed out based on her estimations. She would have been passed out for like over an hour and no one saw her. Oh. So really like a cop should have been walking by at some point or been looking down that street and seen her laying yeah. in a road but nobody did and also nobody saw them walk from the Doss house to the hospital so the you know some of the higher ups were like well you know what the hell like what, what's happening doing? here yeah. yeah like why did no one see her which kind of lends to like the theory of like well did it really happen the way that she said that it happened because when she said it Mm -hmm. she thought that she was gonna live yeah or maybe like the trauma was too much and she just didn't remember it correctly which immediately after might be possible yes like her brain was trying to save her from this awful thing that happened to her oh that that, yeah yeah here's so here's some other stuff um, so also that night, so the other woman who saw Emma uh, in this place away from, she went to the same place to look for customers um, and she saw Emma out there. And so she was able to say, Emma was in this area with me. Mm-hmm. Um, she, they were, they didn't go together. They just happened to go to the same place and saw each other and chatted for a bit. Um, but so at another point she was by herself and these two young kids come up to her and one of them distracts her and the other one like just sucker punches her right in the face. Oh my God. And I think she might have like, I, I think I saw in one place that like she blacked out for a little bit or something. And then she had like a mark on her still at the inquest. So she had that. But then also just a few hours before Emma came to the hospital, a beat cop found a woman who had been badly beaten about the head um, in the East End there 
nearby. Um, and he took her to London Hospital, where she is received by the child doctor, oh. Mr. 23-year-old doctor. Um, so she had been very badly beaten about the head. She was in a coma for a couple of days, but she ended up waking up and surviving. Oh. And so she was asked if she remembered anything, but she had no memory of any of it. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump ahead to another bank holiday in August. And this is what I call victim zero, Martha Tabram. Is this the one that like people so are 100% this sure? This is the one that most people... I would say most people are in consensus that she is a Ripper victim, but she is not one of the canonical five. So it's kind of a, a modern thing that she's included. And I would say more people agree on her inclusion than our um, third victim, Elizabeth Stride, okay. of the canonical five. Seems like more people agree on her, on this person, who's not in like the historical, basically, five. So August 6th, it's another bank holiday. At 3 a.m. in this, so there was this basically like a tenement or like apartment building, and it had outdoor staircases, and there was, of course, no lighting. So a cab driver returns home from work, and he sees a shape of like a person slumped over in the dark on the landing of this outdoor staircase. He doesn't like think anything of it because there are people who are sleeping rough, and they'll come and sleep there all the time. Sex workers bring their customers there a lot. So he just, you know, big city, blinders on, just, mm -hmm. you know, walk forward or whatever. Um, at 5 a.m., so two hours later, there's a different man who is leaving for work. And he, in true horror movie fashion, stumbles right over a body. Oh. And so they call a constable and a doctor. Was it really dark? Yeah, it was pitch black. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's. Like there were gas lamps, but it's very dark. But they're yeah. they're not really all that close together, mm -hmm. um, and so there would kind of be like pools of light on the street. But then there would be these big dark stretches mm -hmm. kind of in between them. That makes sense. But this is on like a building by itself, and they don't have you know like in a, an apartment building today you'd have like a light outside the door mm -hmm. or whatever. Even on a house, like you have a light there. They had nothing, so it was just pitch black. The doctor discovers that this victim had. 39 knife wounds. Jeez. They were in like her neck and then all the way down to like her groin. And although people, so they determined that she was killed in this spot and people were sleeping in all of these apartments like feet away from her. Mm -hmm. Nobody heard anything. Nobody woke up. Some modern researchers, they believe that she was actually like throttled or put in a chokehold or somehow choked before she was like stabbed and killed. because that way she wouldn't be able to scream yes because mm -hmm. that that way that would um like stop her from being able to scream and in her they have a photo of her face after she's um she's been killed because another interesting fact this was kind of the start of like forensic photography oh so before this it was they weren't really taking pictures of like victims or i wonder if that's why jack the such a big story though um i mean we'll talk about it later. okay <laughs> Stop jumping ahead, Angel. <laughs> Just guessing. <laughs> in our next part. Um, so in her in this photo of her, so it was a postmortem photo. Um, her she's kind of bloated from like all of her um like alcohol addiction anyway, but her her mouth is kind of um like open mm -hmm. and her tongue is swollen and it's sticking out a little bit like between her teeth, and you can kind of see it between her 
her tongue or her lips, I mean, but, um, but her tongue's not like all the way out. And that's characteristic of like a strangulation because, you know, you're like gasping for breath. And so you're, it kind of sticks out. So that's, um, that's a theory. So she was unidentified for several days and eventually, um, an interesting character who's another middle-aged sex worker named Pearlie Paul, real name, Marianne Connolly. She came in and identified this victim as Martha Tabram, who at the time was uh, 39 years old. And she has an interesting and likely full of shit story that she tells. Uh, Martha Tabram, she had been married with two sons, but her husband had left her when she became an alcoholic, like a dick. And I think oh, that okay. kind of sounds a bit like, I think people use that in kind of like a flippant way, but like it was it was basically like the opioid addiction basically mm-hmm. of now. Right. So she was, she was an addict and it basically destroyed her marriage. Um, he left, but he paid her an allowance as was legally required until he found out that she was living with another man. And she was also working as a sex worker. And both of those things meant that he didn't have to pay her oh, anymore. Okay. And the ironic thing is that of course this allowance is basically like jack shit. So you can't survive on it anyway. So mm-hmm. a lot of these women would have, have no to. choice yeah. but to engage in like survival sex work to be able to eat and have a place to stay and whatever. Mm-hmm. So over the years, she's in the East End after this. No support from her husband. And she uh, alternatively like sells trinkets in the street. And she engages in some sex work to feed her addiction and to get her pennies for her DOS. Um, especially because she would at times break up with her partner. Mm -hmm. And so then the place that they would be living together, she would then have to go to one of these like DOS houses that will be coming up all the time, like on George Street and all that. Um, So she would be kind of in and out as like her, you know, relationships would come and go. So Pearly Paul, who was described as like gross and like mannish. That's so sad. They really... They really, yeah, they don't, they don't pull any punches when they're describing her. They do not like her and they think she's ugly. So Pearly Paul, she's telling this story at the inquest and she's claiming that she and Tabram were drinking in a pub and they met up with two uniformed guardsmen. Mm -hmm. So they were like soldiers, um, they were a type of guard and they were out for the bank holiday. They had all their money and they were in their uniforms. So she says that these two young guys were buying them drinks and they were basically socializing and hanging out all night. Um, And then eventually they leave this pub and go their separate ways to, you know, have their interaction and whatnot. And they never see each other again. Mm -hmm. However, Pearly Paul was full of shit. Well, yeah, it sounds like it's full of shit. From a really mean description of like she was very unattractive. That's like everything though, like this. Some of this stuff, like, it's just a nightmare trying to, like, um, translate these things into, like, not horrible stuff to say. Anyway. (sighs) So Martha Tabrin's, her sister-in-law, so her brother's wife, she actually saw Martha Tabram in the street alone at the time that Pearly Paul says they were all together. So him, or her, uh, Martha, and then their two guardsmen Mm -hmm. at, like, a different pub. So this woman sees her, and she actually... Hi, she knows that she saw her sister-in-law because she hid from her because Martha Tabram would come around all the time and try to get money from them. Oh. And like she would 
cause a ruckus. She like broke their windows on their house some of the time when they wouldn't give her. She would shout obscenities in the street. So she was kind of a a terror when they wouldn't give her the money that she wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she saw her, her sister in law. She hid and she watched her for a while to to like make sure she was going to so leave and she knew didn't see her. Hundred yeah. percent that she saw her. So Pearly Paul says that these gu- uh, these guards were Scots guards, and those people are. They have a certain kind of uniform that you could tell, like who they, like what kind of guard they were based on what they were wearing. So these Scots guards were stationed at the Tower of London. So after giving this information, she fucks off for a couple of days. What? They can't find her, and they've set up an identity parade. Oh so my gosh! She had okay. So she had been staying in one in like the, these DOS houses, and the the thing too is all these DOS houses these people are staying at. They're all owned by these same men who are all interconnected with like marriage and like illegal business dealings of course so yeah so pearly paul is like one of their you know people who lives there they find her like a couple of days later turns out what had happened was um she she like left the inquest Mm -hmm. packed up all of her shit in the doss house people saw her doing that were like hey pearly paul where are you going she said i'm gonna go throw myself in the river and kill myself so people were like oh and then she left Oh, turns out she just went to somebody's house and was like hanging out there for a couple of days. But the police eventually tracked her down and found her. So then they go and they have this identity parade um, of the Scots guard. So she's like walking around, looking at people and um, looking at all these guys. They have everyone like out of their barracks, like off to like looking at Mm -hmm. everyone. Everyone's there. It's a whole big thing they had to put together. She says they weren't actually Scots guards. They were Coldstream guards, which are they have different things on their uniforms and they're in a different place oh so the police are like really frustrated obviously like you're but they lying. set up another identity parade what? at the place where the Coldstream guards are and she's like walking around there are newspaper reporters there and they're saying she's like walking around like enjoying all the attention well, at this yeah. point and she eventually pulls out like two random guys and says these are them these are the two guys we were with they both have um alibis yeah the one guy was at his barracks so he had like all of his other soldiers and superiors and everything like, there's no that. freaking way yeah. the other guy was married and he was at home with his wife so yeah. and they knew at that like the police knew then that she had just i mean they suspected before they found the alibis mm-hmm. for these guys but they they kind of knew that she just picked these two guys at random yeah and then that kind of is the the end of uh the martha tabram uh, thing there so that was august 6th let us go along to our next person who was also known to pearly paul but this was so august 31st and this was polly nichols her mm-hmm. real first name was marianne but just like pearly paul she got called polly so in 1888 she was 43 years old she had had five children and she was uh she had kind of had an on and off relationship with her husband and they separated for the final time in 1881. Um, he said it was because she was an alcoholic. Um, her father at the inquest said that it was because her husband was having an affair with the woman who like, was her midwife in her last pregnancy. So who knows? Something happened. They split up. Yeah. Um, a lot like Martha, her husband paid her an allowance until he discovered that she was a sex worker in because 1882. Yeah, and then he cut her off. So between that time, she's going in between 
staying at DOS houses, going into work houses or like poor houses, um, living with different like men, like as partners and mm-hmm. living with her father and sometimes even just like sleeping, sleeping rough, like in Trafalgar Square, just sleeping on the street. Oh. In 1888, she was at a workhouse and she was actually given a position of being a domestic worker for this fairly well-off family. So Polly writes to her father uh, and her son is also living with him to uh, to tell him about her new position with this family who are religious teetotalers, which means that they do not drink alcohol at all. They're straight edge. Yeah. So here's what she says to him. I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It's a grand place inside with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They're very nice people and I have not much to do. I hope you're all right and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present. Uh, from yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. So I just like that because it's it's like the only surviving words from any of our victims that we oh. really have. Um, so after she sends that nice letter saying how she's gotten on so well and everything and right back soon and she's doing really well in this like sober household, um, before her father can write her back, she steals some clothes and absconds back to Whitechapel. Uh, Yes. After she absconds from this house, she ends up in uh, in an all-women's DOS house on Thrall Street. However, just a few days before she was killed, she had moved over to a co-ed house uh, on Flower and Dean Street, which is another one of these really terrible streets that's going to be coming up all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also interesting because some of these other victims will find that they have also moved within a couple of days of when they're murdered and they come to a new DOS house. So on the night of her murder, which was August 31st, she had been out drinking and soliciting. She returned to her old DOS house on Thrall Street and met up with some of the women there that she was friends with. But she didn't have any money for the night, and so she was told to leave. But she had told uh, some of the women there that she did not like the new place she was at, and Mm -hmm. she wanted to come back there. When she was kicked out, she told the deputy to um, to save her a bed and said, um, she said, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. And she pointed to a new black bonnet she had because she thought that's going to be the selling point. People want this hot thing with the the new bonnet. I mean, maybe I don't really know how it worked back then. Yeah, I mean, it probably. I mean, it did probably. I think that maybe the overall like thing of like having being kind of Depends a bit on how more together. Big the bonnet. Maybe she is just too. felt really good. Yeah, like she, she have just, a lot of she confidence. Was just feeling good about herself. Yeah, confidence. I think is she very was also attractive. really drunk though when she oh. said this. I think everyone's always drunk during that time. Besides that family that didn't yeah. drink. Yeah. yeah. She and was, even then, they probably still drank. Yeah. So she was really drunk. So she had probably been, I mean, they said that she had been, um, she'd had some customers so far that night. So she had been probably what a lot of people were doing, which was you get a customer, you get your couple of pennies from that, you buy drinks, you have to get another customer, buy some more drinks, and then eventually 
you have one or two last ones to get your DOS money to go back and sleep it off. Um, at one point during the night, and by the night, I mean super early morning hours, mm-hmm. she comes across another friend who's also like a, a survival sex worker, as a lot of these women were at the time, where they they didn't, it wasn't their job all of the time. Mm-hmm. Like they would sell little things here and there, but it was something that you would have to do sometimes to Just get, to get the money by. to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So a friend sees her, walks by her, talks to her, says, come back with me. Um, she is so drunk that she is like stumbling down the street and she's holding on to walls. That's how bad she was, but she didn't have her money. At 3.15 a.m., a beat cop walks down this street called Bucks Row. He sees nothing. Then at between 3.40 and 3.45, so like half an hour later, mm-hmm. there are two men that are both car men. So they like drive carts or something like that. They're both walking to work down Buck Street separately. They don't know each other, but they're both going to work at the same time. 3.40 in the morning. That's shit. God. Jeez. <laughs> but people are just out like at all hours. It's Because everyone probably had stories. really like random work times in yeah. comparison to now. Yeah. Like if you work in the docks and stuff, you'd probably have to wake up earlier. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're like basically like housewives are like hanging out on their like stoops at two in the morning and then got these guys going to work, work at, at three. like, yeah, three yeah. or four. So these two men, they're, they're walking separately, but they're both on this street and they're going down Bucks Row and they see this dark shape. The one guy leans down and looks and he calls the other guy over and says, there's a woman here. I think she's either drunk or dead. The other guy comes over and they look and it's pitch black. They can't really see anything. Um, But then they decide, you know what? We don't want to be late for work. So her, so her skirts had been, they weren't sure if she was dead yet, right? (sighs) They thought she could just be passed out, but maybe she was dead. And her skirts had been pulled up like around, like over her knees and kind of like up to her waist. Mm -hmm. So they, they pull her skirt down for modesty and they said, okay, we're just going to walk until we find a beat cop on our way and we're going to tell him. And then that way we're not going to get fired for our jobs for not showing up Yeah, because there are no workers' rights at the time. You can't be like, sorry, I was helping the cops found a body. Yeah. I found a dead body. So I didn't come to work early. Thank you, Union, if you can be late to work because you found a dead body and they can't fire you for it. Anyway. So they walk on. They find a cop who's moonlighting on duty doing what's called knocking up. So Mm -hmm. people would like pay someone to come and knock on their window or their door at a certain time to wake them up to go to their Mm -hmm. odd hour shifts. And so there were a lot of B cops that would take this money to like, they would take the opportunity to learn a little extra money yeah. and they would do the knocking up on um, like on their beat while they're in the area anyway. So these two guys, they say that they tell him, Hey, there's a, there's a woman who might be dead in the street there. And apparently he's like, yeah, okay. And then he just continues knocking up mm-hmm. and they're like, Oh, well, got to go to work. We did our due diligence here. However, another cop who is, um, who's actually on his beat walks down Buck's row, which is on his beat and he finds her there. Okay. So then the other guy is doing the knocking up. He comes around a third cop ends up showing up and they get the doctor there. And it's only then when these cops are all standing around there with their lanterns that they're able to shine the light and see that she's actually dead 
and her throat had been cut. Oh my gosh. They discover that her face and hands are cold, but her her body underneath her clothes is still a bit warm. So mm-hmm. they estimate, the doctor estimates later that um, she would have been dead for about 30 minutes at that point. Um, later on during the investigation, there was a woman who lived literally right there. Like mm-hmm. her window looked down on the spot where Polly Nichols was murdered. And she said that she was a light sleeper and she would wake up all the time. Her whole family lived there too. Nobody woke up. Nobody heard anything. Jeez. So what they did then, um, because there's like no forensics or anything. Yeah. They get some guy with a cart to come and they like two people lift her up. So one person grabs her from like the top end, yeah. one from the bottom. And then, you know, your body would kind of like bend a little bit. Mm-hmm. right? So they lift her up like that. They put her on this cart. They send her off to a shed in a workhouse. To, so to wait for light so that they can start the autopsy. Yeah. So during her like postmortem or autopsy or whatever, they discover some, the, these are some of her injuries. She had a slight laceration to her tongue. She had bruise marks on the side of her face and her neck where they think that she was like throttled like Martha Tavern. And they think that that is why nobody heard anything because mm-hmm. she was like choked to unconsciousness beforehand. Just kind of a good and, like yeah. forensic countermeasure. Well, and the other thing forensic, too is that yeah. the other thing is that when you choke someone like that mm-hmm. and once they basically pass out, the blood flow, like your blood is not pumping for a, for like a moment. So oh. they think that that's when, so that he basically choked them, took them to the ground in the, like the choke hold mm-hmm. and then cut their throats. And then that's how, you know, he wasn't like sprayed with the, like the arterial spray. I wonder that if he would normally figure, get. figured it out or he knew. Yeah. Obviously this is like, well, in- it seems like, yeah, it seems like he knew or else he was extremely lucky here. Like really weird facts just know, but I guess this will go into the speculation of who he is in the next episode. Yeah. Her neck was cut through pretty much to the vertebrae. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah, and um, that sounds really flippant, but oh, it is. It is. There was, um, so she had a cut to her abdomen and they only discover this once they take off her clothes. Mm. So there was like a really jagged and this is where the ripper part comes from. The mm-hmm. cut was very jagged and I guess it was kind of like, like the knife was stuck in and then kind of like pulled really. So it wasn't like a smooth cut like you would do if you were cutting like literally anything ever. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really just kind of like a stab and then pull. And that's oh, why. It's like a rip. It yeah. Was, yeah. Why it was called like ripping. Yeah. And the thing is that her organs were like her abdominal organs were protruding a bit through it and so they but they just attribute it to the way that they picked her up when Mm -hmm. they didn't know that she was like that she had these injuries yeah of course her skirts were pulled down and they just never thought that to look to even look at that yeah Yeah. um however by what the the doctor who did this post-mortem is the same 23 year old doctor Okay. This is a different dude. That guy works at the hospital. Oh, this was just okay, like, okay, okay. they would just go and like knock on the door of a doctor sleeping. They'd be like, excuse me, doctor so-and-so, you're needed in such and such a street. That Someone's body. been murdered. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Um, and the other thing too that was interesting about, about Polly Nichols was that there, there was so little blood in the street mm-hmm. um, that they were able to just wash it away really quickly. But it turns out it's because um, that – all of this blood had been soaked into all the layers of her 
clothing. And so that's why, you know, like the two cart men, they didn't step into like a pool of blood and realize there was an issue that way. And also like maybe the previous murders as well, where they're like, well, there's no blood on the the ground. I don't know. I don't think so. Because like what had happened was all the blood had kind of come out, but then it, it got sucked into all of our clothing. Okay. Because, um, with the people who lived in the DOS houses, there you couldn't really leave stuff there. Oh, so, so people had to carry everything with yeah. them. So you can find lists of what what all these victims were wearing, what all the things in their pockets were, and they would be wearing everything they had. So like some of them would be wearing two dresses because they had the two of them or whatever, mm-hmm. like you know, two petticoats and that sort of thing. Um, so it had been all you know wicked up by her clothing, and that's where it was. So when they, you know, like picked her up and when they took off her clothes, that's when they could see that, you know, that's where all of the blood had gone. Yeah. And uh, and the the blood being in her clothing, that was also another sign that she had been already on the ground when her throat was cut. She wasn't standing when it happened. So before the postmortem was even finished in, I mean, I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear this because they're so together Mm -hmm. on this already. Two old guys from the workhouse, their Mm -hmm. workhouse inmates, somebody told them, go strip the body of the clothes, wash it, get it ready to go off to the, um, to like the, you know, whatever funeral place or whatever. It wasn't done yet. They weren't done. So someone, so some cop person comes along later and was like, what? Yeah. Where's all this stuff? (laughs) And then no one knows how it happened. But anyway, so things really got like people were the. You know, no crime scene was um, secured. Not even the body was secured. People could just come and go. Of course. It was just a mess. Um, so pretty early on, it was suspected that uh, that the same person had killed Emma Smith and Martha Tabram. Mm-hmm. And this was at the time. So this was in the newspapers. And this is kind of when... Um, when the newspapers really started to start printing things yeah. about, you know, like murder and white shop, all this stuff is happening and all the sensationalism really started. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she was buried, it was basically just in a, in a pauper's grave and there was no marker. So they don't know where exactly her burial is. That's but not in, comforting. No, I know. But in the, um, in the, the place where she is buried, like that, graveyard or whatever they have a memorial plaque that's kind oh, of like okay. in the area so people will go and like pay their respects mm-hmm. we just had the anniversary people will go and like put flowers there yeah, yeah yeah so our next one was annie chapman she was also called black annie i don't really i forget why i didn't know if it was maybe she was like full of soot or something no i'm imagining she's not like actually like african-american or no she was not not. african or no she's actually the only victim where they have found a picture of her in life oh so there's this picture of her from uh like the the 1860s when she yeah 1869 when she got married and they have this picture of her and her husband and of course it's like you know this beautiful dress civil war era kind of dress because it's the 1860s yeah. um and yeah and that's the only one that people have ever found and it was it was found not that long ago oh, i think wow. it was i think it was since the millennium or whatever like not it was it's a really recent find and it was a big deal so now that's like the only not horrific picture yeah yes. not like horrible 
picture that they've taken of of yeah so that's really cool anyway she was black annie um i think some of it sometimes people would call that because like her hair was dark later on one of our victims she was mary kelly she would be called black mary and i guess it was because she would have like black moods like she would get really like angry and confrontational Mm -hmm. when she would drink and things like that so for some reason annie's called black annie at the time of her death she was 47 years old she had two daughters and one son who had some kind of uh, physical disability they're not like they don't really know what Mm -hmm. it was And he was sent away to live in a home with kind of like caretakers or whatever. Um, And so they weren't really in each other's lives. But um, one of the daughters died at age 12. So at the time that that Annie Chapman was like in the East End, she would have had like one daughter and then this son who were, they were, you know, basically all estranged. Mm -hmm. She mutually separated from her husband. Uh, there's not really any evidence as to why they did. But a couple years later, he died of cirrhosis and dropsy, which was, I, oh, I forget now what dropsy was. They know, Like they know what actual disease it was now. Okay. That's like the old timey um, word for it. So even though they had been separated for like years and whatever, Annie, when she heard that he died, she was still very sad and she grieved for him. And so she still was, you know, like fond of him. Mm -hmm. She didn't hate him, celebrate it. So it's it's kind of a mystery as to why they, you know, it seems like they didn't have a horrendous falling out Mm -hmm. or anything. Um. So after the separation, she eventually moves in with this guy who made sieves. And so she was sometimes called Annie Sivvy. People would just change their names for oh, so weird. no reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, you didn't carry ID or anything that's like that. True. So if so, I think it happened a lot with uh, these people who would be they were separated from their spouse, from their mm-hmm. husband and they would take up with a new man. And so then they would take his name and they would pretend that they were married for, you know, like respectability or whatever. Um, but also just if you just move to a new place, you could just start using a different name. And yeah, it was way easier to be someone new. Yeah. And uh, it was also really common for the for like people who immigrated uh, to change their names to like a, a especially a less Jewish sounding name oh, was a popular yeah. thing. Um, like Lipsky, his his name was not actually Lipsky. But that was the name of the people that he lodged with. And oh. so he changed his name to that because he thought it sounded less Jewish mm-hmm. at the time. And, and the woman he died, er, the woman he died, the woman he killed, her last name was Angel. Oh. But she was a Jewish immigrant from from the same area. Okay. So I'm pretty sure she changed her name too because mm-hmm. I don't think that's. Just to throw people off a little yeah. bit. Yeah. You don't need that in your life. Yeah. So as I said, the picture that uh, that we have, it's the only surviving picture of a victim during life. It was taken during 1869. She would have been 28 years old at the time. Uh, that's that seems really late for the for the time to be getting married, but she was in domestic service. So oh. it was a lot more common at the time for especially like poor girls mm-hmm. and women. If you would go into domestic service, you would be a maid for a longer time or, you know, doing whatever job you had in the house. And you would get married at a later stage in life. Okay. So that's why she got married then. So she usually lodged 
in uh, in a DOS house uh, on Dorset Street. Dorset Street was known as, quote, the worst street in London. So it was the worst of all the streets. Like it was the poorest. It had like the worst DOS houses. Um, apparently there would be about 300 residents per night in that house that she slept in. What? And it was not, it, I mean, it was not built to be a DOS house, right? Like it was a house and they just crammed 300 people in a night. I'm imagining 300 people in this apartment. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's pretty. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing. It was one of the worst ones. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, cheaper but then all these people were there and then you get all the problems of when you cram all these people together. Yeah, that's true. Um, so in addition to, you know, like, like all of these women, she was like an occasional survival sex worker. She also did some other work like doing crochet that she would sell mm -hmm. and also selling flowers in the street. Okay. And she would basically have to supplement in order to get by. In the days leading up to uh, Annie's death, she got into a fight with a, a younger woman at the DOS house. It was, it's kind of in dispute what happened. It was either about the younger woman lent Annie some soap and Annie didn't give it back. Or it also might have been over the patronage of one of Annie's regular clients. And he might have gone to this younger woman oh. and Annie got mad about it. So it actually came down to like physical blows. Annie slapped this woman across the face. Then this woman punches Annie in the face and then also right in the chest. Holy and so crap. Annie had a black eye and she also had um, like bruising and injuries to like her chest and stuff. That Man, people and, were hardcore back and, then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I think Polly Nichols, too. She was also known to, to occasionally be like, you know, they like it would she would brawl sometimes yeah like especially and there was like a riot or something in Trafalgar Square one time the police like noted down that she was particularly difficult to deal with <laughs> and swinging and everything like that um but anyway so Annie would have a black eye and uh and these other like chest injuries would mm -hmm. also be like seen in her autopsy several days later after she was killed so that's how like how bad it really was she got like knocked to the ground. So she, like she really just got her, she got her ass whooped mm -hmm. and she felt it for days later. So she, in the following days, she was complaining about pain. People said she looked pale and unwell. Um, she wasn't able to like go out and like get any money. Mm -hmm. um, so she was like kind of doing extra bad in that way. So much so that some of her friends would like give her a, a little bit of money so that she could eat. Um, and she was talking about maybe going to the hospital or the infirmary because she was feeling so unwell. And it seems like she definitely went and got some medication, mm -hmm. but she was back at the DOS house. Um, and they said she kept looking worse as days go by rather than looking better. So she is just really feeling bad. So the night of her murder, so it was the night of September 7th into the early morning hours of September 8th, she didn't have any money for her bed. But she asked to use the kitchen at the DOS house to bake a potato. And they let her do that. Okay. So she's in the kitchen there. She's talking to other people. And she tells a friend that she feels uh, way too ill to go to the place where she would normally be searching for her customers. But she had to pull herself together and get out somewhere closer by, I yeah. guess. Or else she wouldn't have money to stay anywhere. 
So she tells the deputy not to lend out her usual bed because she she says she is going to come back with the money. Okay. So she heads out the door. So she had every intention of coming back home. Yes. Yeah, but she was in bad shape. I believe she had consumption and the the doctor said, like, who did her postmortem, that she would have only lived for a few months beyond her murder. Like, she would have died from whatever disease it was Mm -hmm. that she had. Um, So, I mean, she was really, she was in bad shape. She had had years of addiction and Mm -hmm. living on the street and, you know, horrible nutrition and everything. So she was in, like, really, really bad shape. Um, So she goes out. 5.30 5.30 a.m., there's a woman who knows Annie, so from the DOS houses and stuff. She sees Annie speaking to a man in the street. Annie is facing away from her. Or sorry, Annie is facing her opposite. opposite. Annie is facing her, and this man has his back towards her. So she can see Annie's face. Mm-hmm. And she hears him say to Annie, will you? And Annie responds, yes. She describes him as not much taller than Annie, Annie, who's five foot tall, has dark hair, and he looks, quote, foreign. Remember what that means? Yeah. So she thinks he's a Polish Jew, basically. Um, Minutes later, a man goes out his back door to use his outhouse. He had a urinary tract infection, and I guess he was going like, he was just in and out all Mm -hmm. night. So he's going out to use the, um, the, the washroom, like, not long after 5.30, And he hears in the yard next door, there's like a wooden fence between them. He hears a faint call of no and then a thud against the fence. Then he pees and goes back to bed. Yeah. So at 6 a.m., the residents of of that house, the address is 29 Hanbury Street. The man goes out the back door to leave for work. And uh, he sees that there's like a little piece of leather sticking out of his shoe. So he sits down on the step. And takes out like a pocket knife or something that he has. And he tries to like cut it off. Mm-hmm. And while he's sitting there, he notices like a foot or something away from him. The body of Annie Chapman. Oh. Right. Like right on his doorstep. Uh. So he runs out onto the road. And there happen to be two other guys walking by. Because mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, the East End. Everyone's out gallivanting at all hours of the day and night. Um, he runs out in the road and says, someone's been murdered. In my backyard. So they do the whole thing. Cops, doctors called. Um, the people who actually lived in those houses, and you could see the backyard where mm-hmm. her body was from higher up, they actually were charging entry fees to people to come up to their their rooms and look out their windows to see. Because there were just all these like – People back then – Rubber. Were, this oh, is the entertainment. People would do it now. Yeah. I mean, but I mean the entertainment factor. Then yeah. There's not a lot going on. Yeah. And this is probably the most interesting thing that's happened in our backyard. Yeah. In a long time. Well, yeah. I don't know. I think I think maybe two people probably wouldn't want to see like a, a horribly. I mean, people watched lynchings back in like the 60s. Yeah. So. I think, yeah, I think there was yeah. kind of a different thing. Whereas we, whereas we like see more and hear about more violence and things now, mm-hmm. I think we're probably less likely to be like, oh, you know what's fun? Let's go watch an execution or yeah, whatever. Like, no. oh, I, I heard this woman was like eviscerated. Let's That's go our look. line. Like we like reading about annoying things, but we don't actually yeah. want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. But so anyway, these people made some money, I guess, unexpectedly because their windows looked out over it. And all these people came around because at this point, um, it was in the papers. People were afraid that there was, you know, someone stalking the street, killing all these women. 
And it was like a whole big, I don't know, what's, the, what's, what's an old timey word? Hullabaloo. It was a hullabaloo. <laughs> and um, nanny. Yeah. So they, they had people come look. So they come, the doctors say that her throat had been cut near the ground mm-hmm. so they could see based on like blood and the fence and everything. Um, and that they believe she was like choked and again brought to the ground and her throat was cut while she was on the ground. Um, the cuts are again described as jagged. Uh, the doctor said it was about that it would have been a six to an eight inch, very sharp knife used. And he said such as knives used in postmortems or very oh. sharp slaughterman's tools, but not a knife that would have been used in like leather working. Mm-hmm. So those are very sharp knives too. Also, like cobbling and making shoes was a very common trade for um, for the Jewish immigrants in that area. So it was really common for people to have those kinds of knives. Yeah. But he's saying it had to have been like a like a knife for eviscerations. And this is where for like butchering. Yeah. Or for doing autopsies. Yeah. On humans, which you could actually go and view just for funsies i mean yeah i guess there isn't a lot of going on yeah you just go watch people being cut like what even anyway there are autopsy like people watch autopsy videos now so so very much like martha tabram uh annie chapman's tongue was swollen and it was sticking out from her teeth but still inside her lips a lot so that is of course sign that she's been throttled before being cut and that's why there wasn't screams or anything like that especially mm-hmm. because there it was a row of houses yeah and uh, she was like right outside the door like she was a matter of inches from this doorstep that the guy walked out of and the only guy who heard anything was a faint no from the guy who was going to the outhouse yeah the guy with the uti yeah. yeah no one no one woke up in the houses so she had fresh bruises along her jaw and her neck just like um some of the other victims and they also saw all the bruises from her fight the few days earlier. Yeah. So then this is where things are going to get really gross. So if you don't want to hear about internal organs and things, just skip, skip a bit. So her feet were on the ground. Mm-hmm. So she was laying on her back. Her feet were on the ground and her legs were in the air and bent and spread apart a bit. Oh, yeah. So like the guy was, it sounds like, like in between her legs. Yeah. So he, um, the killer, had cut her open, like, in her abdomen, and he had, like, pulled out her intestines and, like, threw them over, like, basically, oh, sorry, I'm, like, gagging as I talk. But, like, it's just, like, throwing them over her shoulders as he's just kind of, like, I don't know. Like, he's having fun with it. Well, I think or just trying to like get them out of the way really fast. Of what? To get what? To get to because because he took out he cut out her um, her uterus the uh, a portion of her vagina and two thirds of her bladder. Why? Because he's a killer. (laughs) What he does? Lots of killers out there. I'm trying to figure out like. Does this guy want it? Like, did, was it okay? Sorry, was it left there? No, or did they? It was so gone. He, so he, he took, took it. them. Yeah. So I'm imagining he ate it for some reason. I don't know why. 
Like, are you sure you haven't seen From Hell with Johnny Depp? <laughs> I I'm just imagining. Uh, I've done a lot of cannibal I, stories. There, well, just... there have been other. I mean, there have been other serial killers. Like I'm thinking of Charles Albrecht, who like took women's eyes. Yeah, but he. They don't really know what he did with them, but I I don't think they think he ate them. Like they think that he there's been ones where like they'll cut off like a breast or something and they'll just keep it for a while yeah. until it gets too like decomposed and then yeah. throw it away. Ugh. Anyway. So this is the thing is that they so they're saying all this stuff comes out, and this doctor is saying at the time, like, oh, he might be a medical man. He would need, you know, autopsy experience to be able to get this out. Like what but are you talking about? Know how to do he the cut, same. but he like cut out. He he took off like two thirds of the bladder yeah. as he's trying to get the the um, uterus out. They said all of its appendages, which I think was Victorian for like fallopian tubes and ovaries. Mm-hmm. I would assume like what other appendages are there? Anyway, they just can't say what they mean. No anatomically correct words for these people they they just assume everyone's really stupid who's gonna read it and no I, no i think it was more of like a, a proper thing like oh. it would be it would be so scandalous to put that in like a you know what's a going on is uh... yeah so yeah so that's where like it really started the whole thing about like oh it had to have been like a doctor or a medical student and, you know they were taken out with uh with like surgical precision and like the pitch black it's like Mm. were they though yeah i think if you went in for a hysterectomy and you came out with like only one third of your bladder left I you'd be like this guy does not know what he's yeah, doing exactly for sure well i don't mean to do this but i'm gonna have to cut you off because the editing for this podcast is gonna be two hours already yeah i will be obviously having you back this very pr- soon to finish this episodic podcast First, How many parts will it be? We'll, we'll find, find out, out together. Because we don't know yet. We don't know how long this is going to be just yet. Thank you for coming. And thank you to my listeners for listening. You can follow me on blah, 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 blah. You know, Instagram and Twitter or whatever. Just look for people keep, keep dying. dying. It's people keep dying. That's and probably it. How many other things called people keep dying yeah. are there? And um, I'm running a contest. And if you haven't been listening... Then I'm giving away free socks. It's in the end of the like the all my episodes recently. All you have to do is contact me, and then I'll just give you free socks. That's it. So. Hey Angela, <laughs> I'm contacting. You. Okay. So and that's it. So hopefully you're not dead by next two weeks. And I changed my uh, um podcast to biweekly because I got really stressed out from doing it every week. So. Yeah, so thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.